All right. Well, before I get started, I do want to just say thank you to all of you. Uh, it is been very, very encouraging the way that you guys have received me uh, and just uh, shared your appreciation for me and for Lauren. And it truly is a, a privilege to have been called as the lead pastor here at Redemption. We're super excited. Lauren and I love each of you very much. And so we are very excited to see what God will continue to do in and through this church. So thank you. <clears throat> Today, we are going to be in the book of Titus. Uh, we, I don't think we've been in Titus uh, at all since we uh, started redemption. Uh, we're going to be look, taking a look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But before we can do that, there's a little bit of background that's important because we're jumping in towards uh, the last chapter of the book. <clears throat> so Titus was a young pastor. Uh, he was a pastor at a church on the island called Crate. Crate was not the kind of place you or I would want to live. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quotes a Cretan poet. And that poet says, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Even the people of Crate acknowledge their poor reputation. And it was a reputation that they had earned. It was their uh, unique religious views that gave birth to their reputation as deceivers or liars. They believed that the god Zeus was born on Crete, that he died on Crete, and that he was buried on Crete. That was offensive to the Roman Empire, to the Romans, because Zeus was the king of the gods. To imply that he was born like an ordinary man, that he was no longer alive, that was extremely offensive, and it was considered to be an intentional deception on the part of the Cretans. And because of this and, and other things, but I think primarily that, every Creighton was considered a liar. If a Creighton spoke, it's because they were lying. Then they were called wild beasts. And one thing that's interesting is Crete had no wild animals on the island, and the people of the Roman Empire thought that was because they didn't need them, because they themselves were wild beasts already. This island was rife with, with warfare and with, with fighting among the cities, with piracy, homosexuality. They, they lacked any kind of, of gentleness or just common courtesy towards their fellow neighbors. So they were wild beasts and they were also gluttons. And that's because they were ruled by an insatiable appetite for pleasure. Nothing was beneath them if it brought them the pleasure or profit that they desired. Sounds like a fun place to plant a church, right? Titus certainly has his hands full. But when Paul's using this quote, he's describing the false teachers that were starting to gain traction and were causing trouble for the church. He says that they were disrupting households, that they were leading households astray. And it appears that what they were teaching was some twist of the gospel plus some of the Jewish purity laws and then also uh, embracing these Cretan stereotypes that I just mentioned. So in this book, Paul is condemning these false teachers, but he's also teaching Christians how to relate to the world around them, how to relate to other Christians, and then in our chapter today, how to relate to non-Christians. How do Christians live 
in the midst of such a sinful and wicked culture. This is relevant for us today. We live in a culture that is, is wicked and that is sinful, that has rejected God and his word. They, they scoff at his commands. So how do we live in the culture around us? We talk about wanting to reach the community around us. How do we do that? Does it matter what non-Christians think about us as individuals or as a church? As we walk through these eight verses, Paul's going to tell us how we ought to live. Then he's going to give us the theological basis for that way of life. And then he's going to give us the goal for living that way in the first place. So open your Bibles with me and read along. We're going to read the whole passage to start, verses 1 through 8. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can read along on the screen behind me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. So the them that Timothy, or not Timothy, Titus rather, is to remind, is referring to Creighton Christians, the Creighton believers, those who have placed their faith in Jesus. They've already been taught this before, Paul's already given this to them, but they need to be continually reminded so they can keep these truths at the front of their minds. So first, they are to be submissive and obedient to their governing leaders. The terms rulers and authorities here sometimes can refer to spiritual powers, but contextually it's very clear that this is talking about earthly political leaders. Submissiveness is our our internal disposition toward them. So we respect them. We we give them the honor that they are due. Obedience, then, is our adherence to the laws that they make. So long as our government leaders do not create laws that force us to sin, we must be obedient to them. That's the command that we find in God's word. This means that a violation of our preferences or our opinions uh, on a given process or plan that is not sufficient reason to disobey or disrespect our governing leaders. You might think that their plans and their actions aren't very good, and you might be correct. You might be totally right, but you're not the governing leader. They are, and God has placed them in that role, and you need to show them the respect and honor that they are due. This is true even when those leaders do not fear the Lord. Uh, The book of Titus was likely written in like the mid-60s 
when Nero was the emperor. If you're not familiar with Nero, he was a wicked tyrant. He viciously and ruthlessly tortured and executed Christians, fed them to wild animals. He crucified them. He burned them alive to use as a candlelight at his dinner parties. This guy was a monster. Yet Paul still says, be submissive and obedient. So if this applied to Christians living under a leader like Nero, certainly that applies to Christians today living under our leaders. Our highest authority is always God's word. We do not submit to any order that requires us to forsake God's word, but barring that, believers are commanded to be obedient to their leaders. Then moving on from our responsibility to our earthly leaders, Paul speaks about how we relate to our non-Christian neighbors. And he says the way that we do that is by being ready for every good work. Every single good work. Now that's a very broad statement that you can probably think of a lot of different kinds of good works. And he'll give a few examples in in verse 2, but Paul's use of this phrase earlier in the letter and in some of his other letters, they help us to understand really what Paul has in mind when he talks about being prepared to do good works. And I want to read briefly. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like, but it's just one verse uh, from Titus 1.16. Uh, Paul uses this phrase another time. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So these false teachers in Crete, they claim to be Christians, they claim faith, but their actions prove they don't actually possess true and genuine faith. And their lack of faith, it says, leaves them unfit for any good work. Then later in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes that Jesus gave himself up for us in order to gather a people to himself who would be zealous for good works. If we look at the book of Ephesians, we were created in Christ for good works. If we go to Colossians, Paul tells us that if we wish to please Jesus, we must bear fruit in every good work as we grow in our knowledge of God. There's a clear link between faith and good works. Only those with true faith in Jesus Christ can do the kind of good works we're reading about here. Because these good works are the visible outworking of our faith in Jesus. And since this is set in the context of our behavior towards those outside the church, what Paul is saying here is that we must be ready to do good works for the benefit of those non-Christians around us. We need to live in a way that both pleases God and as far as we are able, that serves those around us and shows them the love of Christ that we have experienced through God's work of salvation. Verse 2 gets more specific, and it gives us a few examples of these good works. But I want you to notice, too, that each of these examples contrasts those Cretan stereotypes that we talked about at the very beginning. And in these contrasting ways of living, Paul shows us that where the culture around us is sinful, Christians must be countercultural. Where the culture around us is embracing sin, we must be firm on those things and not cave to that pressure. The Cretans were known for their dishonesty, so Christians should speak evil of no one. And some translations, instead of speak evil, they use the word slander. 
But the idea is spreading misinformation about maliciously attacking the reputation or the character of somebody, usually through falsehood or, or something that you don't actually know to be true. But it can simply be the effort to hurt or to tear down the reputation of others. Christians should be known by their non-Christian community as people who speak with honesty, who speak with good intentions, who aren't trying to manipulate for personal gain. And this command is all-inclusive. No one includes the people that you like and the people that you dislike. So we need to be mindful of the words that we speak or the words that we type or write. Before you speak, ask yourself, is this painting Christ in a negative light or in a positive light? Those outside the church should not see us as mean-spirited, people who are ready to, to take aim at anybody who says or does something that we don't agree with. We have to use our words wisely to speak the truth of God truthfully, but also graciously. Our words need to reflect the gratitude, the joy that we have in Christ. As the island of Crete was known for its, its roughness, for its combative nature, Christians should then be known for the opposite. It says we're to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Another way to translate uh, avoid quarreling would be to say we are to be peaceable. We need to be a, a voice of peace and gentleness in the midst of a combative culture. We live in a combative culture, a culture that is always looking for something to fight about. Nobody wants to discuss and have conversation with people they disagree with. They want to shout at somebody who doesn't match their values and opinions. And They'll do it over anything. People fight over the stupidest things. There's important things, I guess, that they fight about, but uh, really dumb things too. I, I haven't seen the movie, but I have laughed pretty hard about all the arguments that I've seen over the Barbie movie. Like, If you liked this movie, well, it's because you're a woke liberal and you hate America. If you don't like the movie, well, you hate women and you spend your free time kicking puppies. Like, Those are the only options. There's no in-between. Like, you can't just be like, oh, I thought it was a funny movie. No, you didn't. You hate women. Uh, it, there's, there's no in-between. Everybody wants to fight and quarrel and argue. But as Christians, it, that shouldn't be so for us. Our culture is combative. Our culture is aggressive about anything and everything. But we need to be distinctly different. Brothers and sisters, our job is not to fight against the culture. Non-Christians are not enemies we need to vanquish. If you consistently find yourself in heated arguments or you end up calling those you disagree with names or, or condescending or belittling them, you're forsaking this command to avoid quarreling and be gentle. Now, this doesn't mean that we are weak or that we cower before a sinful culture. Being gentle and peaceable, that does not exclude firmness. We can very firmly disagree with what our culture says about sexuality, abortion, or any other thing that our culture calls sin, which God calls, uh, calls good, which God calls sin. But we can disagree on those things in a way that honors and respects the people we disagree with. Non-Christian neighbors are not our opponents. They are people in need of God's grace. And then the final command that Paul uh, gives to us here is to show perfect courtesy to all. And that word courtesy has a really wide range of meaning. 
gentleness, meekness, humility. It, it kind of sums up just a general kindness that we are supposed to show to all people. So Paul here is showing us the kind of neighbors and citizens that Christians should be. Lauren and I have really two different kinds of neighbors on our street. Uh, the neighbors behind us, they're awesome. We really, really like them. They're this super sweet older couple. They are very kind. They love saying hi to our daughter. They're super nice to her. They give her their, their grandkids' toys that they've grown out of. They give them to us so that Maddie can have them to play with. When we're out of town, they keep an eye on our house. They water our plants. They pick up our mail and our packages. They're great. Uh, actually, it's funny. The last time they did this, it was Amazon Prime Day. And we were out of town. And my wife likes to save up her shopping for Amazon Prime Day. So this poor guy, he had to make like three trips to his truck just to bring us all of our packages. So they probably think we are horribly irresponsible, but we're not, I promise. Um, super nice people though. We love having them as neighbors. On the other side, we have a couple of middle-aged adults and they don't do anything to annoy us, but it's very clear that they don't want anything to do with us. Like, they're not overtly rude or mean, but they're never going to overtly be kind or considerate either. It's a good day if I get a wave back when I say hello. I mean, I have not to this day had a longer than 20-second conversation with them. They just want nothing to do with it. I could be dead in the driveway, a house could be on fire, and I don't even know if they call 911. Like, they just, they're going to stick to themselves, right? All of us would prefer the kind and considerate neighbor. Each of us then should strive to be the good neighbors that we're being commanded to be here. And the way that we do that is through godly living. Number one, godly living produces ideal neighbors. Now, I'm sure that our uh, younger neighbors, I'm sure they're nice people, but we don't know it because they refuse to interact with anyone. If we wish to be godly neighbors... We can't isolate ourselves away from the people around us. We have to know the people around us. We have to be in our community, know what's going on, know what it needs so we can meet those needs. But we can't do that if we never venture out of our comfortable circles. Godly living is always good. But if we're only doing the godly living within our church circle that godly living will have no effect on those around us. And that's ultimately the goal you'll see when we get to verse 8. And that's why it's so important that we do things like Lake Fest, where we just show up and say, hey, we're going to take care of this and make your lives easy here. And we just show up and we talk to people and get to know them. Things like the farmer's market, where we get to know people and we share the gospel with them, or the worship night that we just did. It gets us out of our church bubble and into the broader sphere around us. When we do those things, all of us need to be getting out there. Be present with us. Get out and meet the community that we keep saying that we want to reach. And I really think that we have done a great job at this. But just like Timothy needs to remind them, my job is to remind you that we need to keep on going and keep doing these things we've been doing to be ready for every good work. As we move through the rest of this passage, we're going to see that, that there is a very distinct purpose for living as the ideal neighbor, as a model neighbor within our community. Verses three to seven, they provide that theological grounding 
and the basis for that command. And then, as we just talked about, verse 8 will provide the end goal for those commands as well. So I do want to reread verses 3 to 7 together again. So please look there with me or follow along on the screen. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 3 is is setting the sinful state of humanity in contrast with the life of the believer just described in verses 1 and 2. Unsaved people are foolish because they lack wisdom to understand and grasp the world as it truly is, to grasp the truth about God. They uh, instead have been led astray, deceived by the world and by, by the devil, believing falsehood. And at their core... They are totally rebellious and disobedient to God. They're slaves to their various passions and pleasures. Their own desire for personal gain and pleasure and satisfaction, that is their God. Everything they do ultimately is for that personal gain. They're enslaved to it. And then this slavery to passions that can't actually satisfy gives way to malice and envy. And malice is, a, is another term for wickedness or sinfulness. So they're passing their days in sinfulness and envy. When they see others who appear to get the satisfaction they desire, they get angry because that is what they want. They start to hate those people. It produces division among their relationships. They're hated by others and they hate others. And that doesn't mean they hate everyone, everybody hates them, but it's characterizing the state of humanity. It's one that exists in brokenness. There's division in those relationships. It will always be characterized by hatefulness and ill will. And this is why simply adopting the views and ways of our culture, it will never create the harmony and cohesion that many think it will. See, our our culture, they, they want the church to just get with the times, to step in to this century and stop acting like they're from the year 1000. I don't know what year. But they want us to get with the times. They want us to just embrace what they say is good. But that won't actually solve anything. That won't make them like the church. Because if we're assimilating into a secular and sinful culture, we're assimilating into a culture that is inherently selfish and given to division and brokenness. Because that's the state of unsaved humanity. Broken and sinful and selfish and divided. But it's very important for us to see, before Paul lists any of these things... He says, this is exactly who each of us were. This is who you and I were before Jesus saved us. So as we talk about this, you shouldn't look at even the worst of sinners as your enemy or somebody to be angry at. Because the only reason that you are different than they are is the saving work of Jesus Christ. So when we see those around us persisting in sin, even in ways that might be harmful to us, It should provoke not a desire to fight or to be angry or aggressive. We should be moved to compassion because that's exactly who each of us would be if not for Christ. 
That's the argument that Paul is making here in verses four through seven. We were formerly this way, but then the loving kindness and goodness of God appeared and saved us. So now we are this way. Number two, godly living is enabled by the saving love and kindness of God. I really love these verses, and these verses are actually why I picked this passage. Uh, it, it is such a cool demonstration of the Trinitarian nature of salvation. We see each member of the Trinity working in harmony together to accomplish the act of saving God's people. You've got the Father, the Spirit, and the Son all working together. Now, when this word for goodness is used to describe God, it's always used to talk about his kindness to us in relation to salvation. And the term loving kindness is a compound word that literally means love for humanity. In, in Greek, it's the word philanthropia, where we get our word philanthropy. It's only used twice in the whole Bible, but it's used really, really, really frequently outside the Bible to talk about Roman emperors and Roman gods. And so what Paul's doing is he's taking this word and he's painting God as the true ruler, the one who's truly in charge and who actually does act for the good of his subjects. And we know that to be true because God has saved us. Not because we're good or because of any righteousness that we have accomplished, but simply according to God's mercy toward humanity. And then it tells us that God has done this by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people see in this description two separate acts going on. So they see the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Grammatically, that's very difficult to defend, and I don't think that's the best way to see this. It's better to see one act or one concept here. So the Holy Spirit is performing a washing that leads to our regeneration and to our renewal. So then we have to answer, what's regeneration and what is renewal? And it's going to be helpful actually to look, we're going to look at the prophet Ezekiel in just a moment because the language here in verses five and six, it's echoing the prophet Ezekiel, also the prophet Joel, but we're not going to look to Joel today. Uh, but if you guys want to turn there, we're going to read a few verses from Ezekiel chapter 36. <clears throat> Verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you can see the overlap of language and themes between these two passages. In Titus, you've got the washing, regeneration, renewal. In Ezekiel, you have the sprinkling clean. You have the new heart, God putting his spirit within us that leads to obedience and holy living. If we read from the prophet Joel, you'd see that language of God pouring out his spirit comes from the Old Testament as well. No matter how hard you and I might try, we cannot live a life pleasing to God, period. And the reason for that is because we are spiritually dead. Right at the beginning, I told you that these good works, a non-Christian can't do these good works because they do not have that faith in Jesus. If they don't have that faith in Jesus, they are spiritually dead. And knowing this to be true, God promises people all the way back in Ezekiel that he would wash them clean, that he would give them a new heart. 
He says, I'll put my own spirit within you so that you can be obedient, so that you can know me and walk with me. That's what regeneration is. It's the act of the Holy Spirit where he imparts spiritual life to us so that we're enabled to obey and please God. And without that act of regeneration, we are incapable of even responding to the gospel. In John 6, it tells us no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. This is how the Father draws him, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And that regeneration enables our faith. Renewal is the person we become because of the Spirit's work and presence within us. It's the idea of, of becoming a, a new creation, right? We, we find this elsewhere in Paul's letters, this idea of being a new creation. Anyone in Christ is new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. There is a change that takes place when you put your faith in Jesus. That's the renewal aspect here. So Paul is highlighting the saving work of God through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work enables our conversion and our obedience, our ability to live godly lives. So the Father's goodness and loving kindness appeared, and he saved us through the work of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Jesus is given the same title, Savior, as the Father, because he's the agent of bringing salvation to us. He's the goodness and the loving kindness that appeared. He is the loving kindness and goodness of God made manifest, and he brought salvation to us through his life, death, and resurrection. And this incredible Trinitarian work of salvation leads to our justification so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, to be justified is, is uh, the, the point where, where God declares us righteous. We're declared righteous by God on the basis of faith in Jesus and given the right to be called heirs of God. And our inheritance then is eternal life. Eternal life in perfect relationship with God himself. And we enjoy that now, right? We all, if you know Christ, you know the Father as well. But we speak of it as a hope of ours because there's a, a fuller realization of that that we are looking forward to. Because one day, we'll enjoy that relationship free from the taint that sin has on our bodies and minds. So our inheritance is a present reality, but also a future hope. So then, the theological reason for why we strive to be good neighbors and show love and kindness to non-Christians, even the ones who are antagonistic towards Christians, is because that's exactly how God treated each of us. We were once foolish, rebellious, enslaved to sin, riddled with hatred. But even then, God lavished his loving kindness on us. So when we show goodness and kindness and gentleness and peaceableness to our neighbors and leaders, we're imitating our Heavenly Father. Everything we're commanded to do in verses 1 and 2 is a demonstration of God's character to the world around us. In the work of salvation, God hasn't only saved us, he has done that, but he's given us a blueprint for how we live in the midst of a sinful culture. We treat sinful people the same way God treated us while we were still sinners. So to recap so far, godly living produces model citizens, the ideal neighbor that we are commanded to be, and that godly living is made possible only through the saving work of God. Now, as we take one more look at verse 8, 
we're going to see this is not just about being moral people. That, that's never the goal in Scripture. Paul's theology is always woven into mission. The end goal of being godly neighbors is so that others would also be transformed through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ as well. We're going to read verse 8 just one more time. <clears throat> the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The saying Paul is referring to here is what he said in verses 4 through 7. And in describing this as a trustworthy saying, he's giving it a little bit of added weight, some more importance to this. Uh, the, the phrase trustworthy saying is used only five times in the Bible, and every single time is in one of the pastoral epistles, so 1st, 2nd Timothy, or Titus. It's always used in the context where false teachers are actively opposing the gospel. Right? We, we talked about it at the start. There, there are false teachers who are twisting the gospel into something it's not, and Paul's wanting to make very, very clear. He doesn't want there to be any confusion on this. If a teacher disagrees with, with this, what I've said in verses four through seven, they do not belong to Jesus. They do not have a place among your body. There should be no veering from the truth of this saying, and Titus is to insist on that. But when he says these things, he broadens what's in focus. It's not just verses four to seven, but it's also the commands of verses one and two. So he insists on these things, and to insist usually is actually a word describing false teachers and their confident and foolish assertions. Uh, but, but the word itself is referring to the confidence with which you, you speak of something. And so um, it's appropriate here because these things warrant that kind of confidence because they come straight from the Apostle Paul and ultimately from God himself. And after this, Paul, after reinforcing the truthfulness of this, Paul finally gives us the end goal that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are profitable and excellent for all people. There's two groups mentioned here. Those who believe and people. You have believers and unbelievers. And Titus needs to insist on these things so that the believers live godly lives, that they are ready for good works. As Christians we must be careful to devote ourselves to every good work. Another way to say that is that we must be intent on demonstrating our faith and the love of Jesus to those around us through kindness, obedience, service. And he says doing this is excellent and profitable to non-Christians. And Paul's using these words, I think, because these two words were characteristic of Hellenistic or of, of Greek ethics. Excellent was the moral quality, and profitable was used uh, of a teaching's ability to produce virtue within a person. And so what Paul's saying is that the Christian life is inherently better, inherently more productive than the ethics of the wisest people of that day. When we lead godly lives, we're teaching others what good actually looks like. But again, the goal is not just to help non-Christians become more virtuous. That is a good thing, but that's not the goal. Good works are profitable because they are a witness to a lost world. God works through the faithful actions and service of his people to bring lost sinners to himself. 
those who believe, devote themselves to good works in order to testify to the goodness of God. If you are a Christian, your faith should lead to a witness of good works. That's the big idea of Titus 3. Genuine faith produces a witness of godly living. Genuine faith produces the witness of godly living. So those who have grasped and believed in the goodness, the kindness of God's work in salvation will inevitably strive to do every single good work because it'll be a powerful testimony to the goodness of God that saved them. So Paul is charging Titus then to disciple mature believers who will devote themselves to that end, to bearing fruit in good work for the furtherance of the gospel. Titus's job and, and my job as your pastor is to remind you to think about the implications of the gospel. If God has done all of this, everything we read in four through seven, for us while we were yet sinners, how on earth can we go on living without proclaiming how good he is to a fallen world? Proclaiming how good he is in both word and deed. I had a conversation with uh, someone recently. And I, I don't believe that they know Jesus, but we were talking about church. He was sharing his perception of the church and how there's just so much politics involved in churches. And there's so much fighting. And every week you hear about a new pastor that has fallen from grace and crumbled underneath, underneath the weight of his sin. He didn't use exactly those words. I'm paraphrasing. But that's, that's the idea he was getting at. And I was really unsettled by this conversation. Because that is not the church. That is not what we see in God's word. I don't know what churches he's been to or how they have tainted his view of God or of God's people. But man, how disappointing is it to hear that report from someone who does not know the Lord? And I've heard similar sentiments from, from many other people. Our reputation does matter. How the community views us and sees us is important. Not because we want the approval of the culture, but because it's our job to show and tell people who God is and what he has done through Christ. As believers and as a church, people should know us as those who take God's word seriously, who listen to it, who are changed by it, who obey it. We can't just talk about loving and serving those around us. We have to actually go and do it. We have to imitate the goodness and loving kindness of our God. If you're a lazy employee, if you're a gossip, if you're a hothead and you're always getting into arguments, if you're arrogant, you're unkind, if you're just cold and you never reach out and talk to your non-Christian neighbors, if you join in with your friends at work to mock another coworker, at school to mock another student, what is that telling those around you about the church you attend? Or more importantly, what does it tell them about the God that you claim to serve? On the flip side, how much more effective would our witness be if our neighbors knew us to be gentle and humble and kind and active in serving and loving those around us? That's how the early church was known. It's unfortunate that we don't see that more often. And again, I'm not rebuking you guys because I really do think we're doing a good job at this. But we need to keep going. This is why the early church flourished. In the early days of the church, they were hated and hunted by the Roman Empire but they were known for their unwavering faith in Jesus and their devotion to do all the good things that Jesus commanded. 
Even those who hated Christians could not deny that they were serious about imitating the love and kindness of God to all people. In 112 AD, so about 60 years after this letter to Titus was written, there was a Roman official, and he sought to persecute Christians. He hated them. He wanted them wiped off the face of the earth. And he wrote to the Roman emperor at that time, the emperor Trajan, and he was asking for guidance on how to deal with Christians. And I'm not going to read his letter. Um, you can find it online, but it's longer, so I'm going to summarize it. Uh, but he, he says, when the Christians gather... They gather to sing hymns about Jesus, and they do this frequently. And then they go and they eat meals together, and then they take oaths together that they would not steal, that they would speak honestly, that they would act with integrity, that they would not commit adultery, and that they would be, this is my paraphrase, be good neighbors. And he goes on to explain to the emperor, I've even tortured two young Christian slave girls and the only thing I can find that they're guilty of was their faith in Jesus. He calls it a superstition. So he asks the emperor if a person claiming to be a Christian is in itself enough of an offense to have them executed. That's crazy. Like his whole letter is just talking about how great Christians are, how kind they are, how loving they are, how good they are for society. Oh, but they're Christians, so we hate them. <laughs> Even the people who hated the most could find nothing wrong in their character, in the way that they lived. They had to acknowledge that by all accounts, they were great citizens and neighbors, kind and compassionate to all people. They put their money where their mouth was. They really did keep the commands that God had given them. Our message will at some point offend. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, and it's the power of God unto those who believe. But that's where the offense should come from. When you preach a message that confronts sinfulness, there will be offense, but that should not come from the way that we interact with our non-Christian neighbors. Through these eight verses, Paul is calling us to embody the gospel that we preach. And I chose this because it followed nicely with what I've preached the last two times from John 4 about evangelism, because that was a different aspect of it. That was talking more about the proclamation of the gospel. But here we're seeing that, that our whole life needs to be a proclamation of the gospel. Speaking the truth is vital. But so is letting the gospel take root in every facet of your life so that whoever you talk with, whoever you interact with, can glimpse the goodness of our Savior. If we are living godly lives, even those who hate our message, they won't be able to deny, be able to deny the good that our faith produces. They have to see how we live, though, right? We can't isolate ourselves away. That won't cut it. If we're living godly, but no one ever knows about it, they're not going to see any image, any picture of the God we serve. At the same time, though, we have to be very careful about the influence the culture can have on the church, because that's what's happening in the book of Titus. Those false teachers are getting in and they're starting to sway and lead astray those believers. We need to know our neighbors. We need to serve them, show compassion and kindness to them. If we really are serious about reaching our unsaved neighbors, our faith has to produce a witness of good works and godly living. The majority of growth throughout church history did not come through miracles. 
or through the apostles. It started that way and it spread very, very quickly and very, very fast and broadly that because of the apostles and their works and their, their, their miracles and whatnot. But throughout church history, the vast majority of growth came through believers like you and me living out the gospel, speaking the truth to those around them. It came when non-Christians saw that the Christian gospel really did have the power to transform people like we say it does. So how are we supposed to live in the midst of a sinful culture, one that is often hostile to God and his people? We demonstrate the truth and power of the gospel through godly living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that while even before we loved you, while we were yet sinners, you showed us the incredible love and kindness of sending your son to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, I pray that the gospel would not only be something that we preach, but something that we live out and demonstrate every single day. Lord, I pray that we would build a reputation of those who take seriously the word of God, who walk in obedience to you and embody the love and kindness that you have showed us. Even this week, Lord, help us to, to do a good job in this way, to be ready for every good work. Give us the boldness to preach the gospel, to speak the truth of the gospel, but also to live differently, to be distinct from a sinful culture. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work through this church, that you would work through our godly living, through our witness of good works, and through the witness of our faithful preaching of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.